Hey everyone, welcome to Journey to the West. I'm Jay, and I'm joined here with Sen. Hi everyone, I'm Sen. And today we also have a special guest who you might recognize from Proasian Voice. Um, yeah, my name is Xia. I am I'm a contributor to for Proasian Voice. I mostly just written a few articles. I, yeah, very thoroughly researched articles. Um, she's also on Twitter. We can plug that a little bit later in the pod. But uh, yeah, she's wanted to come on the pod with us to talk a bit about power dynamics and bring in some history and ideology. And that'll be later in the uh, conversation. But for now, we'd like to start with a quick news roundup. Uh, I want to start and just dive right into it. Recently, and at the time of recording this pod, actually yesterday, there was an Asian man who was beaten and robbed in San Francisco on his way to his second job. Um, his name is Vin Vu. And uh, he'll be spending a long time in recovery. He's in the ICU right now. There's a lot of trauma to his head and spine, and he can't move his arms or legs, according to the article that I was reading. So we're going to post a GoFundMe in the description below. So if you have uh, anything to spare, it'd be really great to help him out and help his family out because he was supporting his family with those two jobs. And uh, we want to make sure that he gets the help that he needs. And this is a good seg into another thing that recently made Asian news and just general news. Um, there was a hate crime that occurred and it wasn't necessarily related to Asians, but someone you might recognize, Eddie Wong, responded to it and went on a great rant about white people. And I feel that it definitely applies to our situation as Asians living in a white supremacist society. What I really liked about it was that he basically called out white people for not doing enough and specifically singled out his white friends for constantly making excuses for doing nothing and then just trying to diffuse situations instead of acknowledging that they're complicit. Basically, the message was, if you're not part of the solution, then you are part of the problem, which I wholeheartedly agree with. And that brings us to an update and something that we talked about last time. Uh, the New York City hammer attack murders, multiple, because at the time that we reported, uh, one man uh, passed away. Now all three have passed. And um, so this is a triple homicide. The killer has actually been charged uh, with a hate crime, which is great. Uh, specifically, first-degree murder, second-degree murder as a hate crime, and a bunch of other related charges to him just going in and wreaking havoc on that restaurant. And this is important because uh, hate crimes are actually difficult to prove in general, so the DA wouldn't be pushing for this if he didn't have 
the evidence that he knew would get a conviction. So if he feels confident that this is definitely what counts as a hate crime, then that definitely dispels all of the, the people trying to defend this man with the whole, oh, he was just mentally ill. We, we know this is bullshit. If even the law, which is often not on our side, understands that this is a hate crime, then that should lend credibility to the fact that, okay, you're just covering for this dude because you think it's more important that he's being called a racist than the three men who were fucking killed for their race. Uh, anyway, that's all that I wanted to mention today. Was there anything else that you guys wanted to add? I mean, I was going to talk about um, the way like the news media outlets like framed the triple homicide. Mm-hmm. But I, I feel like I feel like this was already mentioned in the previous podcast, so I don't really have much to comment. Well, there was that article in the New York Times, right? Yeah, well, I think they put uh, the word racist in quotation marks. Yeah, I think, yeah, in the New York Times, they published this article. And I think it was by Ali Winston. And he was basically asking the, the tired question of whether this was racist or not, as if this needs to be asked with, like, the self-admission of the perpetrator himself. And kind of making it about the mental illness like we've mentioned before which i feel like is i don't know why they keep doing this but i feel like they just want to like save face and quiet the whole like racism angle they're like oh yeah don't be too outraged and the whole like it's not me like i didn't do it like type of thing Uh because they know that racism Mm -hmm. is a like a society thing they don't want to be complicit didn't the killer confess to killing the three men, be- was specifically targeting them because of a movie that you watched? I, I mean, think? yeah, uh, we, we, all, we all know which movie. <laughs> I mean, I haven't watched it, but yeah. we all know which movie. I feel like the New York Times, because it's such like a big like publication, I wouldn't say it legitimized the whole, like, is this racist, but... It's more so like the final nail in the coffin in this whole Mm -hmm. bad media reporting. And I would say that the reporting, as we've touched on in the previous pod, is definitely part of the whole symbolic or cultural violence that is needed to sustain the entire system of oppression. Yeah, it makes excuses for white people not only not doing anything and being complicit, but, you know, just making excuses for these things that are happening, including the direct violence of the racist attack against these three men just for being Asian men. Uh, Something that's incredibly frustrating is also trying to have conversations about the significance of all of this with other Asians who refuse to recognize this, who minimize the violence committed against us, whether that's symbolic or direct, or fail to see the connection between all of these things. 
that they're all interconnected and they support each other and excuse each other and allow each other to operate like a, a well-greased wheel. Uh, I think G is particularly well-versed in arguing with people <laughs> in online spaces about these things. I know you wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the, the kinds of things that come up in these discussions and uh, the significance of that. Well, I haven't really been spending as much time lately, but I did spend about a couple of weeks um, in several Facebook groups, specifically ones that were, whose main goal were just to talk about like Asian issues. Um, and one thing I noticed when I was on these spaces is that a lot of these people, for all their talk about how problematic how problematic the model minority is, like about the idea that Asians are somehow privileged. I think, in short, the embodiment of that myth. Like one thing I've noticed they'll do is they'll sort of harp on uh, anything that Asians do that can be construed as racist. So, for example, um, one thing that often gets brought up in these spaces is how, quote-unquote, anti-Black the Asian community is, how in, as, if it's in, as if it's inherent in our cultures. And it's something that I find extremely problematic because it's, it's just perpetuating racist stereotypes. One thing that I've also noticed like, a lot of these people, uh, what they tend to do is they tend to treat the Asian community as, or just Asians in general, as if we exist in the middle of a racial hierarchy, like with uh, African-Americans at the bottom, or I guess just, and with whites at the top. And the problem that I've noticed with that, it's just that it's, it kind of insinuates that Asians have uh, some amount of privilege. And that's extremely problematic because it kind of it, it promotes this idea of Afro-pessimism. Yeah, we're basically assigned a, a power that we don't actually have. Like it's, it's this false structure of a ladder. And I, I was looking into like reasons as to, but for the model minority myth existing, and so the reason why it's created was essentially to pit racial minorities against one another, specifically Asians mm. against blacks. If I remember correctly, I think this started being perpetuated, I think, in the seventies right around or just after the time of the uh, the civil rights movements and the Asian American movement, when minorities were standing in solidarity with third world liberation movements. And I believe that was seen as a threat. And so this was hyped up to kind of separate us and uh, enforce that division uh -huh. so that we can't unite against our common oppressor. 
But yeah, one thing I, I've noticed with a lot of these online spaces is just this basically sort of rejection and acknowledgement of the model minority myth, but they don't but they often fail to address like how it harms us. They often talk about how it harms hmm. other people of color and that it basically holds standards for other people of color to to aspire to. So yeah, for example, it's often used by whites to basically point the finger at other racial minorities and say, oh, hey, look, this uh, this racial demographic are able to get by just fine. Why can't you do the same? Like they, they like people in these online spaces acknowledge that, but they don't acknowledge that it's um, they don't they don't acknowledge how it harms the Asian American community, especially since a good number of people are actually living in impoverished areas. They don't have access to resources. They, I mean, some, I mean, some people can't even vote just because they don't. Yeah. Language barriers. Uh, they don't know what they have to do. Don't trust authority figures, all of that. So that gets like covered by this concept I mean, another thing I would bring up is um, the concept of model minority in the sense of this narrative of Asians being more racist than white people. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like, that's something I've seen. Yeah, like, in just Facebook groups or even on Twitter is, like, the way that they Asian people talk about it, it's more so assigning, like, we are, like, ha- have – more blame for perpetuating like anti-blackness than even white people or like how some asians casually say that oh yeah my asian parents are more racist than white people like that sort of internalized idea there is like underlying like racist things about you know black people and you know indigenous peoples that we internalize mostly because we live in a white supremacist uh-huh. society that's just just how we conceptualize you know other people and i'm not going to say that oh we have no agency or go to the other side and be like yeah we're like totally race just as racist as white people but it's still like a problematic thing to uh-huh. think about because again I've, I've seen it brought up in so many debates regarding like when Asian people are getting, like, dehumanized or there's racist, like, stuff happening to them or they're getting attacked, is that there'll be someone in the comments going, well, Asians are really racist or more racist than white people, so they deserve it. That obviously sounds insane, but there's this, like, hidden contempt that people have of, like, Asian uh-huh. people because of this. So it's it's problematic for us to, like be so quick to be like yeah we're like even more racist than white people we're so anti-black and being all like as if this this is like some kind of confessional and now all our sins will be forgiven you know it's not gonna (laughs) it's not gonna be like that and that's not how i've seen it pan out like if we want to genuinely reach some kind of self-awareness but also mediate between you know different groups we it can't just be this whole I'm more, self-flagellating. Yeah, it's can't be self-flagellation because 
the response I see is like, yes, this validates my the conception of model minority and how the Asians are like benefiting so much from my like, you know, um subordination. So that's my issue with model minority. And it's definitely a false equivalence too, because if you just look at world history or even like the the current day, 85% of the fucking planet was colonized by white people, not by Asians, but by white people. So it's not the same to be like the, the actual perpetrator of white supremacy and then to internalize it as somebody who is also subjugated under white supremacy. Like any minority can internalize that and act upon other groups by using the same ideology, but that is not the mm-hmm. equivalent of being the the actual beneficiary of it. I also feel like with these people that perpetuate these ideas, I I feel like I, I always feel like there's this sense of like them trying to distance themselves from like anything remotely Asian. A way to sort of like separate themselves from the their own group and say, Oh, oh I'm not like those Asians. I'm I'm different. I'm not anti black. I'm uh, I'm not racist. You know, essentially I guess sort of like a white thing to do. Yeah, I see it because it's like, it's this very convoluted way of trying to adopt an identity for yourself because you're not secure in your own identity. Like you haven't figured that out. So you're using this as a crutch, as a replacement for one, which is very sad. Like we're not doing what we're doing now because it's a fad (laughs) or because it's a replacement for a personality. Like we're doing this because it directly affects us in our lives and we understand the extent to which it goes. I mean, this is my personality. I fucking hate everyone. Well, well. (laughs) but, but yeah, it's, it affects us, right? We're not doing this for money and we're not doing this for like likes on social media it's because this is our fucking lives i mean if we wanted likes on social media like we would be here we'd be doing something else we'd be on instagram fucking like doing duck lips or something like this is <laughs> why would i want attention and like put so much effort and thinking into like this type of thing like most people don't want to do it you know and it's tiring yeah and i'm not gonna diss people for not like constantly engaging. Oh, I kind of will. Well, not <laughs> not in that sense, but like I just remember going back to the Eddie Wong thing. A lot of people were dragging him uh, in commentary that he didn't apply this to the murders in New York, and and some people were saying, "Oh, someone should gently remind him that this is related to that too." And I just like I got so mad that it was just talking about how they should do this or somebody should do this, but not actually doing it. So I used my personal Insta to comment on that and tie it into those murders as a reminder. It took a minute. Like it's not that hard to do the bare minimum of the thing. Why doesn't he know? Uh, Someone should tell him, but I won't actually do it. 
Yeah, we'll just expect him to come find this uh, post that I made randomly on the internet. Yes. I mean, I think that, didn't that post get taken down by Instagram, which is like epitome white, white. Oh, um, yeah, shit happens. They're like, <laughs> how dare they talk about us? And then they, they removed it. It's like, it literally just approved his point. <laughs> yep, basically. Anyway, <laughs> that was kind of a tangent. But yeah, this this shit is real. It affects us. There's a long and storied history of this happening over and over again. So the more you learn about it, the more you know, the, the easier you can recognize these patterns play out today. Uh, something that's really specific to the murders, by the way, uh, was the, is the concept of yellow slavery, which is something that Sen brought up. And I would like to you to elaborate on that because it's very white savior. I did mention this a while back, uh, like when, you know, the first well, Chinese Americans were around in the late 18 to 1900s. And there was a lot of like yellow peril being peddled. And one of those yellow peril arguments was uh yellow slavery and i did mention uh in the previous pod about how white people had conceived like an asian society as being like the asian patriarch enslaving all the women so like i mentioned like they couldn't imagine wives and concubinage as like a, a system in their society, so they just said everyone was enslaved, and so this prompted a lot of like white missionaries, uh, mostly women, to you know go all white savior on Asian women. There was like a very deliberate posturing as to why it was called like yellow slavery as well, mm. because. This was like a good time after like the emancipation of uh, black slaves, I believe. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to have this whole like new threat for, you know, the white populace to be uh, scared of. So they deliberately did call it yellow slavery as to equate that the new great evil was coming from um, Asian immigrants. So uh, I do have a few names down. I mean, like, this, the central hub for a lot of this um, did happen in, like, San Francisco, where a lot of Chinese immigrants um, went to. Mm-hmm. If you ever look at the newspapers at the time, they were, like, writing about a lot of propaganda and, like, posting stories, like, story on story on story um, the Chinese prostitute problem, which they inflated to like an astronomical degree because prostitution was like pretty um, active during the time across the board. It wasn't like a specific Chinese woman thing. Like everyone, like white women were doing prostitution, everyone was doing prostitution, but they made it seem like it was specifically Chinese women. Um, there was a missionary missionary named um, Ida B. Hull, 
And she was basically saying, telling the story of how she saved some Chinese um, women from a brothel. I go about my work in a thousand ways, but I don't use much tact. Tact isn't useful among the Chinese. A hatchet is much more effective. The fuck? So she's, <laughs> yeah, she's advocating for violence, but wait, the thing with like, white fe- like feminism and women at the time was they would advocate for violence but also posture in the whole like well i'm still a feminine weak woman and then it would certainly seem so but oh only use it to break doors down she laughed not on their heads although sometimes if i were a man i should like to um and like this whole this whole article basically idealizes her as this like weak small like white woman but she in the face of these evil asian men she's like saving the chinese women when they used racism to push forward a white supremacist version of feminism then it becomes palatable because it's not actually challenging anything Well, that's fucked. Um, I would definitely say that these are some great examples of, or an extension of the arm of colonialism and imperialism. Um, these, the point of these stereotypes and these ideologies about Asians, they're imposed upon us to remove our agency and in the process, our humanity. So we aren't seen as people, basically. We are seen as things, as pawns to move around the board, but we are not seen as people. We are acted upon. We are objects. Um, and I think Ja had some insight to add regarding how colonialism and imperialism are just a tool for, for resource extraction and hoarding those resources. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Um, I was I was reading this book written by uh, Lenin, and his book is called um, Imperialism, the Final Stage of Capitalism. Well, I mean, in short, it's basically talking about how a lot of Western countries will essentially colonize other countries, especially ones that are um, weaker or impoverished, in order to obtain access to their resources, and essentially in order to monopolize those resources. To tie in with what Jay was saying, it's, uh, like, for example, um, for example, oil. Oil is... um, Oil is a finite resource. Obviously, one that's very, it's very crucial. So, I mean, they're trying to pull that shit in Venezuela right now. It's like not even like subtle at this point. But yeah, it's a way to just extract resources for themselves, and essentially yeah, so using valuable. So. I think one way to put it is also that 
uh, it's basically a way to gain resources and keep them for yourself with a with a minimal amount of cost to yourself. So basically, all the labor is being done by the people that you fucking colonized and terrorized, and they're losing out a lot because not only are they having these resources taken from them, but they're doing the work to fucking bring it to you mm-hmm. and all of that. I mean, they did that with like Filipino Americans, like when they colonized the when America, hmm. like bought the Philippines, colonized Philippines, like they allowed like um, Filipino Americans like citizenship or sovereignty. So they could travel to America and back and, you know, be, equivalent to, to work yeah but like they use that as like a labor like they use the filipinos as a labor force and once the work was done and they didn't need them anymore they had the whole like filipino repatriation act and then they you know like oh yeah i guess you filipinos want freedom right we'll just give you it it was during the time when things were getting more hostile for them and like people didn't want them anymore Watsonville riots, they were like beaten, run out of town, murdered, you know, all that fun stuff. Once their labor was like, oh, we like this labor because we we did actually ban all the Chinese people, so we need some labor somewhere. And now it's like, oh, we don't want them anymore. Revoke their citizenship rights, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, ultimately the policy is whatever ends up being the most useful to the oppressor. And to the ruling class. Mm -hmm. It's what serves them the most at that time. I think Ja had a few examples of neocolonialism because obviously the shit has not ended at all. Uh, If you wanted to Mm -hmm. add some modern day examples of how that's still happening. Uh, One big example is definitely English as a language policy. Um, So... For example, I found out that in countries like Taiwan and Korea, there's, I wouldn't say it's mandatory, but from the way that the system is set up, it might as well be mandatory for, uh, for, for students to learn English. So, you know, when people talk about, like, how competitive it is, like, in, in regards to education and just to um, access to jobs in Asia, it, it's not without a reason. It's because of it's because of um, neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. It's because of that that would basically uh, basically these neo neoliberal policies that were essentially pushed onto these countries after the nineteen ninety seven ninety eight. Asian financial crisis, which I think, I think Albert mm-hmm. brought that up in his article more. I think he elaborated on it. Yeah, we can link to that in the description as well for more context. But the Asian financial crisis, the catalyst of that was a bunch of Western billionaires who intentionally bet against the bot and broke the Bank of Thailand. So every country that was connected to that currency suffered a financial crash. 
so like uh, I've heard about how like there are certain institutions, like college institutions, that will only teach their students. I think, I believe they call it a medium of instruction. Like their medium of instruction is essentially English, and how that's definitely made it more difficult mm-hmm. for students to. Well, essentially, like, get the education that they need because it, it it makes it much more difficult. And how, uh, if you want to get in like universities or if you want to get into jobs, you're you're gonna have a much higher chance of actually getting in if you if if you can speak English, uh, which kind of makes no sense because again, this isn't. A Western country, so why why would you even really need English? Yeah, from my understanding, it's not so much mandatory, but it's like if you want to increase your job prospects in this already right. mm-hmm. pretty competitive job market, like you kind of have to know English. Well, which, by the way, well. th- this hyper competition was after those financial crises. Like it was born from need and starvation. A lot of people killed themselves because they lost everything that they had in these crashes. And so the society became not just restructured as one that was hyper competitive because there was need and because there wasn't enough, but also because it intentionally favored English. So there's now this second layer of competition that if you need, if you want to actually have a job and feed yourself, you ultimately have to know English in order to increase your chances of being financially stable, which is really fucked up. You know, when we talk about power, you know, and how like different nations were sort of, especially more powerful nations, will invade on other nations' uh, sovereignty. It, this isn't just apparent over in Asia, but also in like for, in other places of the world, for example, in Africa. For example, um, how like the CIA has overthrown the president of Ghana, I or um, how they will extend loans to to all these countries to help them build up their infrastructure, but unfortunately, by doing so they end up leaving the, a lot of these uh, countries in massive debt, debt that they can't, that they can't pay back. Mm, it's like a Trojan horse debt trap diplomacy. Cause ultimately the structuring of those loans favors the Western nations who are lending. Yeah. So I guess in summary, let's see. Yeah. Colonialism and imperialism are a means to an end, like racism. It's basically a justification and also a tool for getting what you want from people in an unfair way. You dehumanize people until it becomes easy to exploit them. That is the function of racism. And it doesn't just happen at this scale between Western imperialists and other nations, specifically those in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East, but also at home.
by way of racial stereotypes that are meant to keep us in our racially stratified position in society. They're meant to take away our agency, our voice, and leave us powerless in the face of oppression. They're meant to keep us separate from others who would help us fight our common oppressor. And they're there to keep the system going, to keep that machine well-oiled so that it keeps running and keeps exploiting wherever we are. So without this understanding, it's really difficult to actually fight back, which is why when you see people who claim to elevate themselves as activists for our community, stop and think. What kind of narrative are they pushing? Are they telling you that we're the model minority and that we're basically white people with different skin? Are they telling you that we're not oppressed, that you know these things don't matter, the violence that's perpetrated against us doesn't matter? And if you ask these kinds of questions and examine what's being said and what's being done, it's pretty easy to tell who actually has our back and who doesn't, who's really fighting for our rights, our equal rights, and who's just buying into the system and keeping it going. So that is some food for thought that we'd like to leave you with today. Uh, is there anything else that anybody wanted to add? Some final final thoughts? I, got, I forgot to mention this earlier, but when we were talking about the model minority myth, uh, I just want to add that Basically, they, they decide the in-group and the out-group, who's normal, if you will, and who's the other. Mm-hmm. And, well, I'm, I mean, I'll bring this up because one thing I hear some pe- people say, especially white people, is that they will talk about how, um, like, how Eastern and Southern whites, like Europeans, used to be, uh, used to face racism, used to, like, be discriminated against. But I, I think it's important to remember that it's not equivalent. And ultimately, and ultimately that race trumps class because regardless of whether you are Jewish, Irish, etc., you, you're still technically given white privilege. And that's not something that's afforded to any person of color. Uh, yeah, we can definitely see this play out in the Trump elections. He won a lot of the uneducated white vote, which by extension is also the poor white vote. So basically the message is you might be poor, but at least you're white. So you're not like those other poor people. You are above all of them and I'll have your back because I'm white too. That's the message. That's what everybody keeps buying into. Yeah, I think that's, mm. that's all I have. So, yeah, white people of all uh, individual ethnic backgrounds as well as socioeconomic backgrounds can all be complicit in white supremacy. It's kind of the, the lesson here. And especially the white women who were trying to save Asian women from evil Asian men in their opium dens. 
are white women from opium dens. Uh, the man who murdered those innocent Asian men. It all ties together into this larger system of oppression. It all keeps the wheels turning. So be on the lookout when you see this stuff. And I hope that you're able to contextualize these things too and see them as part of a pattern that's ongoing and not just something of the past. I want to empower you with knowledge. <laughs> so again, if you want to learn more, we'll have links in the description and especially links to donate to the GoFundMe for Vin. And uh, yeah, that's all for today. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>